thousands of people along mostly our southern and even our Canadian border from all kinds of people who cannot really be taken care of here. Uh, there simply isn't the wherewithal to do so, and we're being overrun. And it's not just uh, people from Mexico. It's from all of South America and Africa and the Arab world and all over that they are coming in and bringing disease and all kinds of problems with them. Now, what we are looking at is not in one sense that, but what we are looking for is those who have been spiritually oppressed, spiritually poor, spiritually having had difficulties, looking for a place of hope and love and faith and strength and all those things that the Bible talks about are the things that they need. And the whole church has been wandering in confusion now for about 30 years, not knowing what to do or where to go and in one group and out, in another group and out, front door swings and the back door swings. And it's been that way all through the church. And many have even gone, given up going through doors and are just sitting at home. But God knows the ones that he wants to call to do his work. He has always known that, have you noticed? When he had some kind of work to be done, uh, he would call somebody to do it, whether it was Noah or Abraham or Moses. Just keep going all the way through the Bible. Anytime he needed help in a project, he called upon people. And now he is calling upon you and me and those thousands that he is going to stir to come to do his end-time work. Herbert Armstrong was the forerunner. He was the one who was used to get people's attention, and he was certainly there to get the attention of the whole nation and the whole world to some degree, and, uh, and succeeded in that, for many were called. God knew he didn't need millions and millions and millions called. He knew he only needed roughly 150,000. Uh, of course, people came and then they died and so on. So how many know, who, who knows how many were actually called? Uh, nobody really knows. Only God does. But he knew how many he would need to finish the work at the end time. And that of those called, only 10% would be needed to finish the job. And the rest would continue in their confusion and probably go into the tribulation and have opportunity to repent there since they aren't now. But 10% will repent now and will be brought forward to do the work. And you and I have been called to show the place, to show the way, and as much as we can, prepare the way for them and then help them when they get here. So we can't be racist, can we? because they're going to come from all races from around the world. We can't be gender conscience, conscious because they're going to be male and female. You know, uh, we, we can't be prejudiced. We can't be biased in that way. If God called them here, he had a reason for it. So, uh, that we keep in mind. Now, that doesn't mean that sometimes Satan doesn't get involved uh, because sometimes there are tares that grow up among the wheat. So even though God may call and God may deliver and bring, uh, Satan knows how to also plant tares among them. And you kind of let the tares and the wheat grow together until it becomes quite obvious who is who. And at some point then the tares have to be separated. So Christ has made allowance for some of the things that you and I have seen. It's scriptural. It's there. Nothing to worry about. We cannot expunge that which needs to be, perhaps, until it is time and until God makes it clear. So sometimes we worry about things we needn't be worrying about. We need to just say, well, this is what Christ said. He said, let it grow together. And there will come a time to separate. 
But instead, we look and we worry and we fret. Oh, is that a tear or is that wheat? Is that a tear or is that wheat? And then we worry about, should I pluck the tares? How can we get rid of the tares? And we go through all kinds of machinations, maybe, to try to do that. No. Relax, in faith, and trust God. Those were Christ's own words when he said, let them grow together until the time. And then you'll know. And then it'll be clear. And God will make it plain how to get the tares separated from the wheat. We must live by faith. Not impatience, not frustration, not fear, not worry, but in faith. Faith is not a negative emotion. It is a positive emotion with open trust in God. So quit worrying about stuff you have no business worrying about and look forward to the time God says it's time to deal with things. And he will. I believe that with all my heart. So I don't lose sleep over it. Anyway, uh, he's talking about mind preparation here. Then in chapter 9, he says, For his touching the ministry to the saints is superfluous for me to write to you. Uh, ministry to the saints mean, means the service of the ministry, what they were put there for to take care of the churches. And he says, uh, You've been willing, you've been of a ready mind. Superfluous means extra, or not really in need of, or something above and beyond. Uh, extra, if you will. So he says, uh, concerning the ministry, it seems like it's kind of extra, or not truly a need for me to write this. But on the other hand, he goes ahead and writes it. <laughs> because he wants to be sure all bases are covered. So he says, For I know the forwardness, or the readiness, or the willingness of your mind. Forwardness there does not mean presumptuous in that sense. It means you're willing to look forward. You're willing to do what needs to be done in the future in serving, in giving, in helping. So their minds were ready and willing, That's is what he's saying. For which I boast of you to them of Macedonia. So he says, I've been telling people about your readiness, your willingness, your desire to serve in Macedonia, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has provoked very many. So the city was Corinth, but he's referring to the area as Achaia. Uh, Corinthians in Achaia, if you will. Uh, it's funny how the Texans do that. Uh, you don't hear people say anything about Colorado Springs, Colorado. Or Pennsylvanians saying Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, as they speak. But almost invariably, you'll hear a Texan say Dallas, Texas, or Austin, Texas. They always add Texas on there because they're so proud of the sweat of the desert and the swamp there that they have to <laughs> add Texas to it. Uh, if you haven't noticed that over the years, listen. And it's very, very common. But they have to remind you that whatever city they're talking about is in Texas. Uh, that's an aside uh, and probably not worth anything, but he's doing the same thing here a little bit. So he's saying, I was saying that you were ready a year ago. So he's talking here about an ongoing drought and famine that the other churches were being asked to help relieve and be sure that God's called out ones in one area were not going to starve to death, but would be taken care of by their brethren. So, he says, I, I was talking to them in Macedonia about you a year ago, about how you're ready. And your zeal has provoked very many. So, he was telling them about the zeal of Corinth, and it, provoked here doesn't mean made angry, Provoked here means inspired or encouraged people to do the same. 
Yet have I sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this behalf, that, as I said, you may be ready. So he says, I know of your willingness, I bragged about it to others, and yet I'm going to send some brethren over there to make sure I'm not bragging in vain. <laughs> I'm going to send them to help you get things ready uh, that they might be shipped where they need to go. We know there was a great famine in Jerusalem and in another place. Uh, he spoke of sealing this fruit in Spain to be sent to Jerusalem uh, for those in need. So I've sent others to help to be sure that you're ready to send when the time comes. Lest happily, or unfortunately, if they of Macedonia <coughs> come with me and find you unprepared, we, that we say not you, uh, should be ashamed of this same confident boasting. So he's, he's including himself, not just you, but all of us together uh, should not be ashamed. We should be thankful that we're able to serve and help others. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before to you and make up beforehand your bounty. So, they had pledged, if you will, a certain amount that they would send. Now he's going to send some help to help them sort out, dry, pack up, whatever needed to be done to get it ready for shipment. To be sure that the job was done. So, I'll have them come and make up beforehand your bounty or your blessing or your offering whereof you had noticed before that the same might be ready as a matter of bounty and not as of covetousness. Now he's talking here about attitude again. You know, when we're asked to do something, uh, sometimes we don't want to turn loose of what we have. There's a natural reaction in a human being, being selfish and narcissistic as we are, to think, I don't want to give that up. I don't want to turn that loose and let somebody else have it. So, sometimes we have an attitude problem. So he says, I want this to be ready as a bounty, as something that is willingly given, not something that you're coveting to keep and don't have an attitude of thankfulness to sin. Now, they might have said grudgingly, oh, I'll send it. But then, by not packing it up and getting it ready, they're showing that they really didn't want to do it. They're dragging their feet about it, maybe. So he's covering all the bases here to be sure that everything is taken care of <coughs> in the time and way that it needed to be. So then he expounds that, starting in verse 6. But this I say, he which sows sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he which sows bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Now that's a principle that is rehearsed many times throughout the Bible. That if we're willing to give and share what we have, uh, God is going to make sure that we ourselves are also blessed. Now that's a matter of faith too, isn't it? Sometimes we're maybe a little penurious, a little selfish, so we only give this much. And God says, well, if your attitude is such that you say, I'll only give this much, then he says, okay, you only put so much seed in the ground, you're only going to get so much crop back. Now, if you sow abundantly and are willing and generous in what you give, then he says, I'm going to be sure that you have a bountiful crop. But you can't harvest what you don't plant. Or... What goes around comes around. There many different ways of saying it. <coughs> so then he, he says that this has to do with heart, mind, attitude, willingness, and readiness of mind. And he puts it this way. <coughs> Every man, according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
Now that's all about heart, mind, and attitude. You know, there are some people who only grudgingly give you the time of day, much less a taco. Uh, there are people who are so selfish, they'll give you nothing. And if they do have to give something, they begrudge it. I, I became familiar just recently with a situation where there's a big family and there's two brothers who are in their 80s and they have offspring, children and grandchildren. And the two brothers have gotten along pretty well and own thousands of acres up in Iron County and other places, I assume. Uh, and they are in many respects quite wealthy because they own thousands of acres and they may be land poor. They got lots of sheep and lots of land and some cattle and I don't know what all they got. Nonetheless, there's a lot there is what I'm saying. And now the brothers have gotten along on this property for 80 some odd years. Their grandfather having started gathering this all up back in the late 1800s as an early Mormon settler. So over the years, he acquired more and more, and I guess these two brothers probably have as well. And now there's a lot there. And the children and grandchildren now are in a great big fight about who gets what, because there's two sides of the family, this brother's family and this brother's family. And they've had meetings and sent letters and all kinds of things trying to figure out an equitable way to divide this up. Now one side says, well, let's divide it this way. And the other side says, no, we don't like that. So they come up with another plan and the other side says, no, we don't want that. And they say, well, you then figure it out and tell us what you think we should have and what you should have. No, we want you to do it. Bottom line is, this side wants it all. So therefore, no plan that the other side comes up with is good enough, because it doesn't give them everything they want. Remember Abraham and Lot? And there was conflict, and Abraham said, take what you want. You got first pick, go for it. Well, Lot wasn't truly satisfied with that. He really wanted it all. But that's a different story. And his children did as well. And right now they have most, if not nearly all, of that which God set aside as the promised land. I think they are the children of Lot, mostly Ammonites and Edomites. Uh, Moabites and Ammonites and some Edomites probably. But how is this family going to resolve this issue? They may have just to sell it all and then divide the money up. Because that's the only way you can get it half and half, isn't it? It's just dollar for you, dollar for me. That may be the only way they can do it. And some of them love the land. They farmed it, ranched it all their lives. But they may have to give it up in order to settle it. Because of greed, selfishness, and narcissistic behavior. Now, I know a story of a wealthy family. And they had kind of the same problem. Because in this main house where the family had been raised, there were many works of art, many fine and antique pieces of furniture, and all kinds of things that everybody in the family wanted. Well, the last, I don't know if it was the father or the mother died, and everybody went to the funeral. And nobody noticed that one uncle stayed home. And while everybody was gone to the funeral, he piled all the artwork and all the furniture and everything that could mean anything to anybody stripped the house, basically, piled it all in the backyard and burned it. And when they came back, they were furious, but they got over it, and there was no argument. There was nothing to fight over. <laughs> 
So sometimes I guess you have to go to extreme measures in order to get past greed and covetousness and materialism. We have to go to extremes to conquer that within ourselves so that we have a willing, loving, giving heart without begrudging. So they had been asked to give. But Paul wanted them to be sure that they had the right attitude of heart and mind. That they weren't just doing it because they're told they had to. For God loves a cheerful giver. It doesn't do much good to give if you have a stinking rotten attitude about it. Or if you're full of vanity about it, on the other hand. A cheerful, humble giver, if you will. Because some people like to brag about how much they give, uh, and others give so little they can't brag about it because they begrudge giving at all. So somewhere in there, your human heart and mind has to determine what you can give and do it with a cheerful, positive, good attitude. And maybe you've come from here and now you can cheerfully give to this extent, but you might need to be working on increasing that cheerfulness to a greater amount. So you get to the point, like the widow, who only had a mite, but it was everything she had, and she gave it willingly and cheerfully, thankfully, that she could give it. Now that's the attitude we work at to come to have, ultimately, is to be willing to give everything of ourselves and everything we have as needful. Christ set the example. I think I used this last week, but it doesn't hurt saying it again. He gave up the entire universe and eternity and eternal life and everything that you could possibly desire gave it all up and became man of all things. And lived with human nature for 33 and a half years, never giving in to it. Now, he had the exact same nature you do. By nature, he was deceitful and desperately wicked in his mind. By nature. That's what a human mind is. So he was human. He was tempted in every point like as we are. Therefore, if he had not had by nature a selfish, uh, egocentric, lustful nature, deceitful nature, he could not have been tempted. Right? You're only tempted when Satan or your nature leads you to do something that is selfish. Whatever commandment of God it is that you want to break because it would feel or seem good to you. So he had to have experienced those same exact emotions. Lust for wealth, lust for sex and marriage, lust for any and everything there was. Now, he did not let it turn to lust. The impulse was there. The desire was there. But he never let it turn to covetousness in any field. Now, that's a tough one. Because we all have had, and still have, wrong impulses. And when we allow those impulses to grow then they turn into an inordinate desire. The impulse is not a sin. It's what you do with it when it comes 
that turns into sin. He had every impulse you do. And I would say, probably more so than you and me. Because as human beings around the earth, some don't have a particular desire to steal. Others, it's all they think about. Some don't have a great sex drive. Others, that's one of the paramount things in their lives. People have different and varying levels of things where they might have a weakness or stronger impulses than they do with others. Now, some people have pretty much every wrong impulse there is. And others say, I would never bow to such a thing, but they have an impulse for self-aggrandizement and importance, ego and vanity, and say, I would never be like that sinner. Uh, then we read something in the scripture like that. Where one says, there's nothing wrong with me, and another one says, I can't lift my eyes to God because I'm a sinner. So all have sinned. And whether you're just simply self-righteous and think you're above anybody else, or whether you recognize the fact that you're a low-level, bottom-of-the-barrel piece of scum, uh, doesn't matter. There's a great impulse toward ego, vanity, and self-preservation and self-worship. Idolatry. So that's the first commandment, and the greatest commandment. So people who worship themselves and think that they're a-okay look down on those perverts out there who want to lie and steal and commit adultery and fornication and so on. And they look down on them. And you know what? Christ looks down upon them as much as he does those that appear to be outright immoral sinners. Who did he get on the worst in the Bible? When he was here. He saved his greatest anger, his greatest put down for those who thought they were the most religious. I don't guess he used curse words, but serpent, filthy cup, you know, dead men's bones in a sepulcher. Those are pretty harsh words you don't have to be dead very long to smell pretty bad and if you've been in a sepulcher for a month don't open that rascal it'll be bad and that's how he judged the religious people of his day the Pharisees he had more compassion and more love or emotion and desire to help those who were sinners, so-called, then he did the self-righteous. Self-righteousness breaks the greatest commandment. That is to put yourself ahead of God. That's the worst thing you can do, is put yourself ahead of God. Or of God's words, God's commandments. We say, oh, I worship God, I wouldn't put myself ahead of Him. Well, any time you think in terms of vanity and ego and self-importance and all the good things you've done, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, God says that. You're not to pat your own self on the back for all the good deeds you do, much less ask somebody else to. When we serve, it is supposed to be with no strings attached, expecting nothing in return, out of love, for others. And self-righteousness and self-acclaim and idolatry is the greatest sin in the church. Revelation 3 explains it and expounds it as being the worst thing and what he scattered us apart for. We need to think about that. Because we are the most self-righteous people on earth. I think I can safely say that. We as an organization, 
through Worldwide Church of God, thought we are the chosen ones, we are better than the world, we are God's chosen, and we got proud of ourselves and self-righteous about it, when really, we're just like everybody else. We still have wrong impulses, just like the world does. We allow ourselves to carry ourselves down into the rose garden, and we don't like to think about the thorns that we have. We'd rather think of ourselves as a blooming rose. Blooming idiots would be spiritually more akin to what we are. Because it's idiotic and foolish to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. And God scattered us because of it. And now he wants us repenting and becoming humble and not thinking we're the best at anything. Because we're not. We're all subject to sin and temptation. And who are we to judge anybody else? The world or our own brothers and sisters? And sad to say, we have terrible gossip problems right here in this smaller group. We have people putting each other down. We have people imagining other people's sins. We have people looking negatively at each other and imputing motives that are not there to each other. It's sad. It's just truly sad. But we cannot repent of that and love each other and look for the best in each other instead of trying to find the worst and share it with somebody else. When you find something that you think is wrong with somebody and you decide to hold that in your own mind, you are sinning. When you find something that you think somebody else is doing wrong or thinking wrong and you share it with others, you are horribly sinning. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And any time we are accusative or imagining or speaking evil, or supposed evil, of each other, we are of our Father, the devil. Christ says, the one we follow is who our Father is. And when we accuse each other, we are playing right into the hands of Satan, and we are his disciples. I suppose we go back and forth from trying to be a disciple of God to recovering from being a disciple of Satan. God forbid. We think we might not have high opinions of ourselves. But the way we act shows that our willingness to speak evil and negativity about each other is our true attitude. You can gill the lily all you want. You can make yourself seem okay all you want. And you can even put yourself down in false vanity and ego. And Oh, how humble I am. I am just nothing. Oh, God, I'm just nothing. And then turn around and say something worse of somebody else. We deceive ourselves so much. Who are we? To imagine what they, we think somebody else is thinking or doing. Who are we to do such things? To speak evil of one another who are God's children. Every one of us here are the children of God. Called out, given his truth, given his spirit... And we're supposed to be producing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience. And yet at the drop of a lip, 
we're willing to criticize one another. How dare we criticize God's children? How quick do you get on your high horse and get your back up when somebody criticizes your children? Oh, we're quick to defend our kids. We're quick to defend our mate. We're quick to defend ourselves. Somebody criticizes us, boy, we're, we're going to jump on the phone or the email or the gossip horse or whatever's handy and ride around defending ourselves. We're so quick to defend self. That must mean we have a higher opinion of ourselves than we ought to have. How many are humble and can say, yeah, you may be right about that. I'll think about that. I'll pray about that. Maybe I can, I'll see if I'm wrong. If I am, I'll try to fix it. You could be right. How often have you experienced someone saying that to you? You could be right. Instead, it's, you just don't know. We defend ourselves in one way or another. Because of ego. Because of vanity. Now, did Christ have that impulse? Yes, he did. Because if you've had it, he had it. He was tempted in all points like as we are. And therefore, he had the impulse to defend himself. And you know what? He bit it back immediately. And when they accused him of all the things that they said he did, and he hadn't done any of them, we had, He kept his mouth shut. Read Isaiah 53. He said not a word. He let them say anything bad about him they wanted to say, and he did not defend himself in any form or fashion. He bit back the impulse to be selfish, to try to impress others that he was right and good and not a sinner. You know, if you had never sinned and somebody accused you of a sin, how irate you would get? <laughs> oh, my. We get irate when they accuse us of something we did do. Isn't it James that talks about that? If you did it and you're patient, that doesn't mean a thing to God. If you didn't do it and are patient, then that's acceptable to God. So the only time it's really acceptable to God is when you didn't do it and are still taking it patiently. Because that's what Christ did. But we've got to defend ourselves. There's an awful lot about attitude. And we truly suffer with it. Right here. Let's just not sugarcoat anything. We get after each other. We talk about each other. We imagine evil. I've, had, I've been accused of adultery just because I drove by three times about the same time somebody else did years ago. Bound to have been having an adulterous affair. Well, that's just one thing. There have been hundreds and hundreds like that comes with the territory. You have too. Wasn't true, but people imagine things. And then they say things. And then things go around. And suddenly they become true. To the people who hear. No. We can't do that. That's idolatry. And it's putting down God's children. He loves his kids. You know what? Now, he will allow them to be misused and abused. He will allow them to live in caves. He will allow them to be sawed in half. He will allow them to go to jail. He will allow them to do an awful lot of things we read about in Hebrews 11 that are just rehearsals of things that happened all through the Bible. God will let his children go through a lot to teach them, to train them, to test them. But he loves them. 
And you better not be the one that talks them down. Satan does enough of that without us joining in and becoming a disciple of Satan in so doing. When are we going to stop it? I've been talking about this for now, going on 24 years, since I first learned about what I know. I don't know if it's even diminished. Just about as bad as it ever was. When do we begin to make some changes? When do we say, oh yeah, he's going on and on about his gossiping again. When do we just stop? When do we just love each other? Why can't we do that? Why do we have to think negative? Philippians 4.8 says, don't do it. Don't do it. And we ignore it and do it anyway. We'll say it's our favorite scripture and do it anyway. Now what good does that do? I haven't found it in the Bible, but there is a saying that goes around and has for a long time, and I heard it when I was a little kid. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I guess I better quit doing that. But then we don't. We just keep on. Now, if you've got a overt, outright sin that you simply can't deny... You're stealing, you're embezzling, let's say. You're doing something clearly contrary to every rule of man and God. Or you're committing fornication on Tuesday and Friday. Or whatever. That you might eventually come to grips with and say, you know, that's true. I'm physically doing it. I guess I better stop it. But stuff that goes on in your mind, you learn to live with. You learn to accept it. That's why he says, bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. It's not just our actions, it's our thoughts, it's our attitudes, it's our heart that he wants. Paul's saying, I don't just want your fruit and vegetables, I want your heart. I want you to give cheerfully, not begrudgingly. I want you to give up the sins in your mind and think like Christ thought. Because he didn't let his mind dwell on an impulse until it became covetousness and sin. He didn't let it stay there. If he had a negative impulse, he shut it down. If he had a woman, maybe Mary Magdalene, Mary, some of the women around that were following, they may have been very appealing to him. But he didn't go beyond the impulse of saying, Oh, she's pretty. Wow, I, I know. Forget it. He controlled his mind and he didn't let his mind go there. He controlled it. So, he made it very clear in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 that it's not a matter of whether you physically sin. It's whether you allow your mind to dwell on sin. If a man look upon a woman to lust after her, he has sinned in his heart. It's a sin. The wages of sin is death. Christ did not allow his mind to go until it turned to lust and inordinate desire. He shut the impulse down before it got that far. Now that's the difference between our Savior and us. And we are working, are we not, day by day to close that gap, to heal that breach, to get to the point we think more like he did and does than the way we have and do. Conversion is a continual process. You know what? We can sit and think, well, yeah, I know who's gossiping. You know why they continue to gossip? You know why they continue to gossip? Because they have ears that will hear. If you say, no, I don't want to hear that, pretty soon they'll quit saying that. Who does a bully pick on? He picks on someone 
who will listen and whine and cry and do what he says is who he bullies. Gossipers only talk to those who will listen to them. They only put the bait out there for fish they think will take it. And if you quit taking the bait, pretty soon they get tired of throwing it out there and getting nothing back. Have you ever fished? Sometimes you're not fishing, you're drowning worms. And if you don't catch anything after a day or two, you get tired of fishing. You're fishing to get a bite. You're fishing to catch a fish. You're talking to catch an ear and to get a response. And if you can't find a response, pretty soon you have to talk to yourself. Only because nobody will listen to you. So we can condemn the gossips all we want to, but as long as we listen to them, we're aiding, abetting, and egging them on to continue. You know what we call that when somebody's a drunk? We call it enabling. You offer them a beer because they want it. You let them do what they want to do. There are people who have relatives in their house who weigh 600 pounds. And they enable them to continue that and get fatter because the 600 pound person can't get up and can't get out the door and go to Kentucky Fried Chicken himself. So they bring him the big buckets of chicken every day to enable him to weigh 700 pounds because he's hungry. How else do we enable people? We enable gossips by listening to them. Now you immediately say, well, we shouldn't enable a drunk. Don't buy him booze. We shouldn't enable gluttons. Don't buy him food. And then we say, really? Did that happen? Wow! I thought there was something wrong there. Why do we enable gossips if we won't enable people who are drunks or gluttons? Why? Well, there's physical evidence of a falling down drunk. There's physical evidence of a 600 pound person. But there's no physical evidence in the chip, 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 chatter, chatter that we do with our tongues about somebody else. And most of it, most gossip is untrue in the first place. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Not necessarily. People dream up smoke all the time. And then they put the fire to it. God speaks of it as evil imaginations. No evidence, just evil imagination. I think that this must be happening. And since I think it must be, and I'm such a logical, intelligent person, I know it's happening. And over a period of time, we can convince ourselves that something we didn't see at all is actually going on. And we believe it with no evidence. That's why the Bible talks so much through the Psalms all the way through about false accusation. Even the law in the beginning talks about false accusers. And nothing can be brought without at least two or three witnesses. If you don't have two or three witnesses that something actually... I mean eyewitnesses. That something actually happened, it should never be brought up. Because it could be he said, she said, she said, he said, one person's testimony against another. That doesn't prove anything. It just proves they disagree. Solomon faced that with a woman who had her baby smothered. And he realized, there's no way I can get to the bottom of this, because everybody's going to lie and claim it's theirs. 
or one will be lying and the other won't, but how do you tell which is which? So he says, well, let's just cut it in half. And then it became obvious who the real mama was. False accusation goes back a long, long way from Adam and Eve forward. And God makes ways whereby it cannot bear root and bear fruit by saying, okay, got to have two or three witnesses that there was a crime, a sin committed. Otherwise, it never went to the judge, never went to Moses, never went anywhere unless there were two or three witnesses. Somebody came, made an accusation against his neighbor. Moses would say, where are your other witnesses? Oh, no witnesses? Go away. Go away. Don't have time for that. We don't have to have any witness. All we got to do is dream it up our mind and think it and say it. And then somebody gets tarred and feathered. You know what this is? This is, to use one word, abominable. You know what abominations are? They're the worst of the worst, and they'll get you burned up in the lake of fire. It is an abomination for us to speak against God's children. They're not your children. They're God's children. They're your brothers and sisters. And you have to learn to get together in love. What did you try to do with your children when they were little? By nature, they fought and argued and were selfish. Wouldn't share their toys, wouldn't share their food, wouldn't share anything if they could help it. And they fought like kids or cats and dogs or whatever analogy you want to use. So you spent your time as a peacemaker trying to help those children learn to get along with each other, to share, to give, to be kind, to be sweet, to be courteous to each other. And you had a tall order getting it done, didn't you? <coughs> because if they were that way at two, they were probably going to still be that way at 14. I had a couple of sons that weren't too far apart in age. And they were so competitive. Even after they were out of the house and living on their own, they were still competing with one another and couldn't get along very well. Now that they're in their 40s and 50s, they get along pretty good. It only took a half century, but they also live 1,500 miles apart. That helps, <laughs> you know? Human nature is a pretty stubborn thing. So all that effort you put into trying to teach those kids not to be selfish... Too often fell on deaf ears. Maybe you had some effect, maybe you didn't. And Paul is saying, I'm having the same trouble here. It isn't anything new. Is anything new. Same old thing. When can we learn to live in peace and love and build each other up instead of tear each other down? What time is it? Almost time to quit. I haven't gotten very far, but, you know, maybe I'll just shut up and go away. I saw Ted Armstrong do that one time in a college class. Maybe it's a good thing to say. They had a bell that would let professor and students know when the class should be over because they had from five to the hour to five after the hour to get across campus to their next class. But the bell is not in charge of the class, right? The professor is in charge of the class. And in this particular case, the bell rang, and there was Ted Armstrong giving a selection. And when the bell rang, he heard... Book slamming, briefcases closing, feet shuffling, people moving to the edge of their desk, chaos immediately. 
And in mid-sentence, maybe even mid-word, he turned and walked out. They weren't listening to him. He might as well turn and walk out. They were shutting their books. They were getting ready to move on. When that bell rang, their minds stopped at anything he was saying. And they went on about their business. And he said, if you're going to disrespect me that much, I'm out of here. You've seen it at the feast. Sermon's over. Get out your hymn books, brethren. And some people start heading out the door to go to the beach. Or to go to the restaurant or wherever. They haven't been dismissed. They're there in a formal meeting with the opening prayer asking for God's presence. For God to be there. And then before they're even dismissed, they're up, out of their seat, folding things up, and maybe starting to take their suit off because they got a bathing suit underneath. I mean, they're ready to go the minute they get think they can get out of there. Totally disrespectful, not only to man, but to God Almighty, whose presence is there. Now, if God were talking to you, like Moses at the burning bush, and he said, take your shoes off, because you're on holy ground, and you do, and he says, sit up, get up off your face and listen to me, and with great fear and trembling, you do, because you sense the presence of God there. Now, God starts talking to you, and delivering a message to you. Did Moses say, well, I think I got it now. I think I'll leave. Or did he wait until God was completely done and dismissed him? Some people would leave before the song started. Some would leave before the prayer started. Some would pack up during the prayer. Haven't been dismissed. Making all kinds of noises during a prayer to Almighty God. When somebody is giving a prayer and we are collectively hearing that prayer, there should be absolute dead silence. There should be no movement whatever. Because we're talking to God Almighty. And we think we need to fold up our books and get ready to go when we're talking to God? Oh, no. You don't go when the bell rings and you think that the bell dismissed you. You wait until the teacher says, okay, class dismissed. You wait until the song is sung. You wait until amen is given and you say amen and God is no longer there in our presence as requested, but is now done with the service. Amen is when you pack your books. Amen is when you get up and go to the bathroom or the beach. Nothing until. Absolute reverence, absolute respect, because God is here. It is highly disrespectful and presumptuous to selfishly start folding your stuff up when you should have your attention on God Almighty. That's lukewarmness. That's paying no attention. That's a reason to be spewed out of his mouth is because we do not show the proper respect for God Almighty. Now, does he expect respect for his children? He's raising his kids. He's doing the job. He knows when he wants to correct them. He knows how he wants to correct them. He is the one who reads their hearts and their minds, which we cannot do. So it is highly presumptuous, and presumption is as witchcraft. Witchcraft is Satanism.
So presuming to judge or read or put down or be negative about God's children is to criticize Him for the way His children are. So you're not putting down His child, you're putting down He who is raising that child. Let's understand the seriousness of the chitter-chatter of our loose tongues and minds. Class dismissed.